let's belly up to the bar. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Bill Barker. Bill, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. Well, you know, it's got to be five o'clock somewhere, so we're going to talk booze today. Uh, first of all, we've got earnings from Constellation Brands. So that's a portfolio of all types of brands beer, wine, spirits. Uh, also, the proud owner now of the number one US beer, Modelo, uh, which extended its lead this quarter. The company's investing heavily in brewing capacity in Mexico. The question I'm asking myself whenever I see a brand on top is can it stay there? What do you think? Is, is Modelo going to be on top for a while? Well, it's a beer company, uh, so tell me how its advertising uh, is going to do, uh, how well it advertises, and that's that's how it's going to do. That's what beer in this country is: is a successful advertising campaign, or not? And uh, I can remember being at a conference some years back, and. The Budweiser was presenting Anheuser Busch, and what uh, the CEO came up and talked about was the Super Bowl campaign and the commercials. That that was about half of his time. They're an advertising company, which happens to make some beer, and <laughs> and I mean that's been driven home, of course, this year by Bud Light's uh, trip ups with uh, its its campaign and and the boycott against it, and Modelo just was featured. In uh, the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago, uh, for how successful and uh, its campaign is and, and the reasons behind that. Yeah, and uh, part of that is its connection with with Hispanic drinkers and the growing Hispanic population, and it definitely plays to that in its ad campaigns. The other thing it's got is uh, the chalada, which is sort of a little bit like a like a wine cooler sort of. You've got beer with some uh, some lime and some and some salt, and that has grown dramatically. I'm I'm wondering if that's sort of the new the new wine cooler, which is of course or the new hard seltzer or the new the new drinking trend in general. Uh, maybe you'd have to ask one of the kids, uh, <laughs> right? which I don't qualify for these days. I, I don't know. I guess uh, uh, lime and, and salt and alcohol have, have gone together uh, historically uh, very well. So why not? Uh, I guess this is a taste and a combination, which is better known, uh, I think, in Mexico and is now being uh, exported to us. And, and uh, Modelo is uh, primarily uh, good uh, at, at reaching out to the uh, Hispanic community and then expanding from there. And as long as it stays true uh, to its core audience, uh, I think they'll do very well. And expanding beyond that is a, is a great opportunity. But just uh, keeping uh, the, the very dominant uh, role they have uh, in in their core community, a community which is growing in this country. It's a good demographic place to be if that's your uh, core customers. Um, they're in good shape, and then this uh, Wall Street Journal article, you know, talked about it's, you know, the fighting uh, nature behind its ad campaigns, and and I watched one of the commercials, and it was about a grandmother uh, making tortillas. Which I would not have one. known was a good way to sell beer, but apparently it is, and so they know what they're doing. And uh, I would be uh, quite confident that they'll continue to do so, uh, given what uh, what they're focusing on. 
Yeah, it is. It is a different type of ad campaign than what we've seen from from a lot of beer makers in the past. I want to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the the weaker side of Constellation right now, which is wine and spirits. So they've got some good wine brands. Speaking of ads, you've probably seen those Kim Crawford ads with the women like walking with the bottle, and they've got Miomi as well, which they say are outperforming their category. But beer sales were up 12%, wine and spirits for Constellation down 14%. It's still an over $400 million part of the business each quarter, but how should we think of Constellation? Is it more of a beer company, like you said earlier? It's far more of a beer company in terms of. Uh Total sales, I think it's over 70% in beer versus wine and spirits. And, you know, one of the reasons maybe I, Kim Crawford, I may, may have missed the commercials. They sound pretty exciting. There's somebody who's <laughs> walking with, with a, a glass or a bottle of wine. I, I'm surprised I haven't been stocking up on, <laughs> on given, given the powerful uh, nature of the, of the campaign there. But yeah, Kim Crawford's a, a very successful brand. One of some, but uh, sales are going down in that category for Constellation. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's been a trend for a while. They certainly got uh, a little bit of a boost uh, during uh, peak COVID when you could do little but stock up on alcohol and then drink it uh, at home. <laughs> so, so that that was a help for a little while. But uh, the trend is not all that good in that part of the business. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes investing in alcohol companies tricky is because it is so taste-driven. There is brand loyalty. Modelo's got good brand loyalty, but you also have shifting trends. Uh, Boston Beer is a good example. They went, you know, they went all in on hard seltzer, and now that is is slowing. So, it's one of those things where I think you have to keep sort of you have to keep following the trends, and that's that's hard to do as an investor. Well, you uh, combat that. To degrees by uh, diversifying, and Constellation has diversified across you know beer and wine and spirits, so they have some some protection from taste changing from one of those categories to another, uh, and the expansion of non-alcoholic beer as a possibility, and, mm-hmm. and these uh, beer coolers and and things. Uh, so the the top line continues to grow but you know they're go beyond the top line this company seems to be stock seems to be down today despite the uh complete uh earnings report beating expectations the the wine and spirits numbers were uh troubling enough that yeah. that seems to be uh taking the stock down a little bit on a day when the market in general is down a little bit as well well, one of the things that they they kind of missed on was uh, trying to get into cannabis at the height of the craze, which sort of made sense at the time. You figure, you know, just you just talked about like you want to have a diversified portfolio, you want to you want to sort of be ready for things. They spent around four billion for over a third of canopy growth in 2018. Now every quarter, it's just this little little write down at the end of the release with negative numbers. It, they don't even talk about it on the earnings call. It's been tough for canopy growth. They cut around uh, 1,200 jobs over the summer, but now there's just this little bit of optimism in the air due to the potential of the Safer Banking Act. Maybe makes it easier for cannabis companies to get capital. Maybe paves the way to U.S. legalization. Constellation is hands off with canopy growth right now, but could that change? Is there any way that they come back from this? I well, I, I don't want to jump on um, anything you said, but you started out with they kind of missed 
on on this. This this was just setting <laughs> they four, really missed four billion dollars on fire. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this was as bad an allocation of capital as you're likely to see. You know, from this company and from most. I mean, this this was an an embarrassing uh, mistake, I would say, because the, the the value of it is is next to zero, off of a, it's 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 they they bought at the the peak of the craze and uh, they've gotten nothing back on it, mm-hmm. I would say. So uh, will they get something back someday? Will will there be some ability to combine alcohol and THC and and all that in a way that uh, provides some profit I guess if you write things down far enough yes <laughs> but they they haven't finished writing it down I don't think no they have not it's still there every, every quarter well let's talk about a company that's kind of gone in the opposite direction cuz uh, Tilray also reported this week that's a Canadian cannabis company but now is also becoming a, a little bit of a of a beverage brand so you know we think of them as a cannabis company they had five alcohol brands uh, they just acquired uh, it was official this week eight more from Anheuser-Busch all of a sudden Tilray is the fifth largest craft brewer in the U.S. with about five percent market share. I mean, alcohol is not Tilray's core business; it's only around fourteen percent of revenue. But if you're looking at Tilray as an investment, do you do you think of it as still primarily a cannabis business with just like a little side of alcohol? Of course, I think of it as primarily a cannabis business. Although the company is working hard uh, to confuse people about that, for instance. Their Wikipedia page, which I'm sure they've uh, taken an edit at, uh, describes Tilray, Tilray Brands as a pharmaceutical cannabis lifestyle and consumer packaged goods company. <laughs> okay, that's a lot. You would hardly know <laughs> that, their, that their business is selling marijuana, uh, which is their business. And they can expand beyond that. I would say buying brands from Anheuser Busch is consider who is choosing to sell. And what Tilray's uh, experience is there as to whether they got the better price on that. Uh, so, it definitely diversifies things, uh, which they, I think, may need given, you know, the concentration. Despite what they say, is a you know pharmaceutical. All right, what is the pharmaceutical? The pharmaceutical is cannabis, right? right? The cannabis lifestyle. I guess I'm supposed to think that they're selling. Shirts with a you know t-shirts that have weed slogans on them or something rather than the weed itself. Maybe they do sell such t-shirts. I don't know. I think part of a cannabis lifestyle is cannabis, so you know it's not that that far from uh, from accurate. And consumer packaged goods. I think I know what the packaged goods are it's there as well. And so they've they've got some some beer brands, and uh, you know they've they've got to make. A number of uh, of those that are not mass market beers um, work for them, and and uh, they've they've been allowed to burn up a lot of money over the last five ten years. Uh, so they they've continued to burn up money, um, but True. you know maybe someday they'll figure out how uh, the the you know the legislation does offer some some hope, I think, to expand into the U.S. Yeah, and the market has been reacting to that. And the cannabis business, it grew by twenty percent in the quarter. And you mentioned they're burning money. They're still they're still making acquisitions, not just on the alcohol side, but on the cannabis side too. I mean, they're taking advantage of the fact that you know a lot of a lot of, a lot of that boom is now you know these companies sort of need to sell. 
is this kind of a constellation in the making where you're going to have all of these things kind of successfully together? I mean, if if in a future where we have legalized legalized cannabis a, across the U.S., does it then become more of a more of the lifestyle company that it says it is in, in Wikipedia? Maybe there's some moat possibility in in the brand. I don't know. I think that. Uh, you know, once once there's greater legalization, and I, I think of that as a, a when, not an if. Uh, I I think that is the best thing that could happen for them and gives them an opportunity. I don't know how strong the Tilray brand itself is. Uh, the sub brands uh, for the marijuana. I'm sure uh, most people out there know better than I do what those would be. Uh, but uh, they need. That opportunity. It's a big market that they could sell into, but absent that, they are the growth is mostly through acquisition. It's not organic growth, right. uh, so they're not really breaking out organic growth versus uh, the growth through acquisitions. But uh, the the market is not growing in Canada uh, at a rate that uh, they can really point to as a growth company, other than being you know rolling up other. Uh, companies that are struggling even more than they are. Yeah, our, our our friend in the north, Jim Gillies, talks a lot about how there's a a cannabis shop on on every corner uh, in in his neck of the woods. You know, one of the things I'm trying to figure out when it comes to alcohol is how younger people are feeling about drinking. So far, we're seeing Gen Z not as big drinkers as the millennials who were not. Who drank less than Gen X? Who drank less than than the Boomers? So all the way down, you're seeing less alcohol drinking. More people are choosing cannabis in the younger generations. I'm starting to think about alcohol. Is does is there a way in which this goes kind of the way of tobacco? Does alcohol fall that far out of favor? I mean, it's hard. It's hard to imagine at this point, but there is there does seem to be a consistent trend happening here. Well, it's not as bad for you as tobacco, so no, I don't think it. But it's will... not great for you either. <laughs> it, it does a good job of muddying the waters on how bad it is for you mm. uh, in terms of well, maybe one drink. So, it, it no, it's it's not going to fall as much as tobacco. Tobacco would have an extremely hard time today. I think. Uh, Getting legalized if it were not already, uh, but uh, I don't think that would be the same. Would not be true of alcohol. I think uh, so. I, I think it is, as you point out, it's it's a declining volume uh, intake by younger generations. Uh, but the, there are more premium choices. There are more uh, mixes and flavors to, to go along with it. The the industry. Does a good job of uh, increasing choice out there, so I think that that is continuing, and and all these older generations aren't uh, aren't dying off that fast, you know. So so even if the well, youngest, I hope we're not. <laughs> even if the youngest generation is drinking less than all the other ones, the other ones are still around. Uh, so uh, it's it's not it's not that bad a space. No, it's not that bad a space, but uh, but it is a space in which they're c- continuing to have to adapt at a rate that I think is higher than it was in in previous years. In previous years, you could have wine and you could have some beer and you could have some spirits and it's a pretty good portfolio over time. Now it seems like you're constantly having to innovate into new flavors, new you know, new things like hard seltzer. It seems like it's speeding up a bit. 
Yeah, I think it's it's a more complicated game, but uh, you know the the bigger companies, uh, the constellations, have uh, a lot of experience at navigating how you target uh, different ad campaigns to different segments and and data on how to track uh, what generations are are doing um, in a way that I think Tilray is is not uh, you know as experienced in doing so. They've got uh, smaller brands, and uh, I'm sure they'll they'll do something with them. But I, I don't think that they're in in position to play from strength right now. Well, until you get a Super Bowl ad, it's, it's you know you're you're still small potatoes, I guess. Well, uh, there'll be plenty of ads uh, at the Super Bowl. Uh, I don't know if the Modelo. I guess uh, you know. I don't know that they they'll be there. That they're more more looking at uh, the other version of uh, football for their ads than uh, uh, American football. <laughs> True. Thanks for your time today, Bill. Thanks. Office real estate has been having a tough year, but life science real estate is still thriving. I chatted with Alexandria Real Estate Equity CEO Joel Marcus about lab real estate and how the company is participating in the future of food. Start with the the sort of tough question, which is one of the biggest stories over the past year. Of course, has been office real estate. You're a little sheltered from that due to your uh, specific niche, but these larger forces, high interest rates, uh, you know, a, a concerning economy. How have they had an impact on your business? I think they all have. Uh, we uh, were very fortunate. We do, uh, as you know lab space, which is infrastructure for uh, the life science industry, which is essentially made up of biotechnology companies, pharmaceutical companies, many product and service companies that have technical requirements, uh, academic institutions that do research, government research, and a variety of uses that use essentially heavy infrastructure. Uh, which is totally different than office. The buildings may look like office, but they're you know very very different. But the headwinds have been pretty tough. We started or we ended 2021 after what I call the rocket ship of COVID at about a 30 times multiple over our uh, you know per share earnings. And a year later, we found that cut in half. Not because we did anything wrong, because our our uh, earnings last year were all-time high, and so far we've posted two really record-breaking quarters this year. But it was really a multiple contraction due to the headwinds of tough economy, as you point out, interest rates, uh, worry over the secular decline of office. Whereas our industry, the life science industry, is a five trillion dollar industry and is a secular growing industry, but. You know, a lot of uh, investors have a hard time uh, sorting through the uh, the chaff to really understand different stories. Yeah. So coming off of of that rocket ship, as you mentioned, there was so much energy and attention focused on life sciences during the pandemic. How are your tenants uh, dealing with that? Are are you seeing some companies uh, uh, taking less space or subleasing? What are you seeing? Well, I think it's fair to say what happened during COVID is you had the um, you had about a ten year that preceded COVID, about a ten year which was very unusual. First time I'd seen it in the industry, uh, the life science industry, a secular bull market. 
And probably over that time, too much capital went into the sector so that companies that were either preclinical or even so early stage they hadn't even really shaped a, a vision of the future uh, got funded. So you just had too many companies chasing too many uh, you know, targets for therapies and cures. And as COVID came, came along, that just almost like geometric, geometrically increased it. In fact, we had during one quarter, I think it was 2021, we had 4 million square feet of uh, leasing. That was a high for a whole year before that. So uh, the rocket ship was uh, was quite dramatic. Since that time, I think it's fair to say that with the pressures of the macro economy, interest rates, uh, just the um, uh, I think all the forces that are out there, uh, companies have gone to a much more uh, I think cautious view, and it's become a kind of a just-in-time market today. So that uh, the companies that are looking for space are primarily those companies. Certainly, big companies, uh, institutional players have consistent demand, and that hasn't really changed. But in the biotech sector, what's gone from you know just a total rocket ship has moved to a selective group of companies that have positive clinical outcomes or FDA approvals. Then they need space just in time. We need space today, and we need a path for growth. So that's kind of where the big shift has been off of COVID. Interesting. So with that just in time that you're seeing, are those are those still longer leases once once they start? They just have they just come in a little faster than expected? So what happens is it depends on the size of the company. If the company is going for F, or getting FDA approval or well on phase three, uh, oftentimes, it's bigger space, longer space. If it's a company that's getting, say, phase one safety data or they're getting phase two efficacy data, they generally look at medium size spaces and medium uh, term leases because the path to growth growth may be very quick and they may have to move very quickly. So, uh, you know, they're they're a little hesitant to go to a 10 or 20 year lease, but it's common to see five or seven, sometimes 10, but uh, more in the middle innings. So, it sounds like maybe you're having to build flexibility a little bit more into into your game plan overall. Is that is that Oh, sure. And we've always done that. We've gone from startups to giant uh, companies and we've always had product offerings all along the continuum because we've realized that's just the nature of the industry. Well, and and because you have this specific niche, there there uh, you know there aren't many places that people can go when they need the specific things that you provide. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are some of the things that do make this so different from the traditional office space market? Well, number one, it's uh, these buildings are clustered in great science centers, whereas office buildings, sometimes they're in central business districts, sometimes they're in suburban locations, sometimes they're in strip malls, they could be anywhere. Uh, our buildings and the buildings in this industry, by and large, tend to be aggregated in uh, dense clusters that are made up of great science, great management talent, and risk capital. And the buildings themselves are quite different because they have heavy floor loading capacity for heavy equipment, raised ceilings so that you can bring in waters, gases, and uh, enhanced HVAC. And it's just, it's, it's really a different platform. 
we've talked a lot about your pharmaceutical lab space, but you've also got ag tech clients, which I, I find fascinating. I think the future of food is very important. How should investors be thinking about the ag tech part of the business and the potential for growth there? Certainly, uh, ag tech over the last half a dozen years has probably had the steepest incline of uh, investment, venture investment that we've ever seen. For years, ag has been really dominated by a few international incumbents, but over the last handful of years, uh, a lot of venture capital came to the sector because it was under underfinanced and really underserved in a sense, starting a whole bunch of new companies. And so we've participated in that. We've been one of the most active uh, ag tech investors over the last half a dozen years. And the prospect of building a greater sustainable food source rather than simply rely on traditional farming, I think, has caught the eye of a whole lot of investors. And uh, it's become pretty interesting. We have uh, a whole campus down in North Carolina in the Research Triangle, our ag tech campus, advanced technology and ag tech campus, focused on we have a combination of laboratories with technical facilities, uh, adjacent offices that support those, and then greenhouses. And we've had high demand down there for those facilities, both from larger companies and then earlier stage companies. So it's very, very exciting because if you think about human health, nutrition is a critical component, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting because there have been some companies that have come out early, haven't necessarily done quite as well. There's there's obviously so so much potential here. Is is it a case where uh, these companies met, are, are still sort of emerging and you feel like there's more potential going forward? Is, is this an area that you think will expand? Yeah, I think uh, venture capital has gone up maybe over the last six years, maybe four or five X, which is greater than most other sectors have ever seen, a little bit like an AI. Uh, but we're still in the really early days. We started a company, for example, that was primarily a software company, but it had the ability to use AI and software uh, to create uh, varieties, new seeds for, um, uh, for uh, different crops, high-value crops. So, you know, whether it be a high-value watermelon or kind of fruit that just was very um, differentiated versus the uh, kind of generic products that are out there. And that's the kind of, uh, you know, companies that are being formed today, ones to meet just unusual needs. Um, and uh, we think there's great potential there. Last question for you. Uh, as a company, you're headed into your 30th year. You got started in a garage. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> so what are you looking for over the next 30 years to make the company successful? Yeah, so we started uh, in a basement of Jacobs Engineering, not too far from where I'm sitting here in uh, Seattle. Uh, in Seattle, in Pasadena. Seattle was just on my mind. But I think it's fair to say we think that what distinguishes a company over the long term is really what Jim Collins, the famous good to great author, 
has said, it really, you have to have over, over the long run superior results. And we certainly have done that since the IPO. We've outperformed all the relevant indices by far. You have to have a distinctive impact. You have to have a mission that makes sense. So our mission is to improve human health and nutrition and providing the infrastructure that builds the future of life-changing innovation. And then you have to have lasting endurance. You can't just be like most developers are, they're, they're merchant developers. They're, they're saying is buy it, fix it, sell it. We don't view ourselves as that. We view ourselves as long-term uh, holders and operators. So those are the three, I think, essential elements which make a great and enduring company. People on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.